So if your body can't make nitric oxide, which in diabetics it can't, then you don't get the signal for the cell to take up glucose and clear it from the circulation. So you develop hyperglycemia, it tells the pancreas, I need more insulin, you develop hyperinsulinemia, and that's the inflammatory response and what's called metabolic syndrome and, and metabolic disease. So we're finding that if you just simply replete nitric oxide or restore the production of nitric oxide, you complete the insulin signaling pathway, you clear the glucose from the circulation, you reduce the secretion of insulin, and you can basically overcome the metabolic phenotypes of type 2 diabetes. All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project and the Fit Mother Project podcast. I am joined by an amazing expert today, Dr. Nathan Bryan, who is an international leader in molecular medicine and nitric oxide biochemistry. So fair warning, and I should say fair invitation, this is going to be an episode where we are actually graced to be with a scientist who's done a ton of work in this field of analyzing this molecule, nitric oxide, which is one of the most important gases in the body that has massive functions and is really important molecule to look at as we age. And Dr. Brian's been involved in nitric oxide research for the past 18 years has made many discoveries in the field. His discoveries have transformed development of safe and effective functional bioactive natural products and the treatment and prevention of human disease, particularly cardiovascular disease. And specifically, Dr. Brian was the first to describe nitrite and nitrate as indispensable nutrients required for optimal cardiovascular functioning. And he's the author of the book, Functional Nitric Oxide Nutrition, Dietary Strategies to Prevent and Treat Chronic Disease. So Dr. Nathan, welcome to the podcast, my friend. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. So this is going to be fun. And again, as I said, before we hopped on, you know, the people listening to this are everyday moms and dads who want to improve their health and fitness. And they've probably been doing the exercise. They've been eating the right kinds of diets, but many of them probably have no idea what nitric oxide is. And I want to get there, but before, can you give us a little bit of a background, if you will, on, I know nitric oxide kind of busted on the scenes in like the early nineties and there was a Nobel prize in 98. And then you come along over the last 20 years, I would say really push a lot of this research forward in terms of how Apoglobe is to the everyday man and woman. So give us a little background on the landscape of NO and then what is nitric oxide exactly? Sure. Well, again, thanks for the introduction and, and thanks for the invitation to, to come on and, and speak to your listeners. But yeah, I've been involved with nitric oxide research since the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was right after a Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of nitric oxide. So we knew it was a very important molecule, but at the time we did know really how humans made nitric oxide, what goes wrong in people that can't make it, what are the clinical consequences. And then at that time, there certainly wasn't any uh, nitric oxide-based technologies that one could take or implement or employ to restore their nitric oxide. So that's really been kind of my legacy over the past 20 years. We made some fundamental discoveries on, we understand now how the human body makes nitric oxide. We understand what goes wrong in people that can't make it. We certainly understand the clinical consequences of such. So you develop high blood pressure, you develop sexual dysfunction, insulin-resistant diabetes, cognitive disorders, even Alzheimer's. So every major chronic disease is associated with lack of nitric oxide production. And perhaps most importantly, we've made some fundamental discoveries where we now have safe and effective nitric oxide technologies, both in nutrition, dietary supplement, and we've got a drug company where we have some nitric oxide technologies in phase three clinical trials for a number of different disease indications. Nice. And I want to really emphasize this, and I'm going to do a good job of like hopefully translating some of this into like 
as simple as possible. Back to chemistry class, many of us were in high school many, many years ago. On the periodic table, there is a nitrogen and there is an oxygen. And these things get bound together into this type of gas. And this gas is super important in the body. It does a whole bunch of different things. What more would you say to somebody to kind of explain what nitric oxide is and where is it produced? How does it work in the body? Well, it's an interesting molecule because it's a gas that's produced. It's produced primarily in the lining of the blood vessel, and it's what regulates blood flow, oxygen delivery, blood pressure. It controls the amount of inflammation that occurs in the lining of the blood vessel, which everybody appreciates now. It's inflammation is really the killer in terms of cardiovascular disease. And it's a neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. It's how our immune system fights off pathogens such as viruses and bacteria. So when you lose the ability to make nitric oxide, there are a lot of things that go wrong. You, you develop uh, you know, high blood pressure, sexual dysfunction. You need to develop exercise intolerance. You become prone to infections. In fact, people it, over the past two or three years, you know, we've realized during the COVID epidemic that the people that got sick and died from COVID were the people who couldn't make nitric oxide. Those were the older people with a previous heart attack or diabetes or high blood pressure, uh, obesity. These are the exact people that can't make nitric oxide. So we understand now what goes wrong in people that can't make it. We understand the clinical consequences. And so I think that's what people need to understand is that it's a critical molecule that's involved in basically every biological function. And to your point, very few people, in fact, too little, too few people know anything about nitric oxide. And I think it's it's certainly one of those things that what you don't know can kill you because there's some simple strategies that you can do to make sure your nitric oxide levels are optimal and really employ some strategies to prevent this age-related decline in nitric oxide production. Nice. And I want to get into all that, like practical stuff in terms of nutrition, breathing practices, all of this. And I want to emphasize one point. It's something I thought was just so poetic about how the body works is this is such a simple, like it's such a simple molecule. It's just a nitrogen and oxygen and it's ubiquitously used across the whole system. It's like we heard of CoQ10, right? In the, in the uh, mitochondrial, you know, functions and that they call it ubiquinone because it's ubiquitous. Well, is this not like the CoQ10 of gases, if you will, it's just used everywhere and it's a simple molecule. So why do you feel like this is criminally under-discussed? Like, why is it taking us until 2022 at the time of recording this podcast for this to be like a main thing people are starting to talk about in relation to health? Is there anything to say on that front? Well, it is. You know, we know that new scientific discoveries take time to reach the standard of care or mainstream medicine. You know, nitric oxide was first discovered in the late 70s, early 80s. A Nobel Prize was awarded in 1998. And now we're, what, 22 years, 24 years after the Nobel Prize was discovered. And historically, it takes an average of about 17 years for new scientific discoveries to be become part of mainstream medicine. So we're right on time. Yeah, we're, we're past <laughs> that. So I think we're, we're kind of behind the curve. Okay. And there's 180,000, more than 180,000 scientific papers published on nitric oxide. So the limitation isn't the science. The science is very well elucidated. The challenge, I think, in making this part of a mainstream conversation between physician and patient is educating. You know, we thought early on we could go out and educate the physicians on the importance of nitric oxide, but we found that that's, you know, that's an uphill battle. So what we try to do, and I think why what you do is so important, is we have to empower the patient. We have to educate the patient so that they can go and ask the right questions to their physicians. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've noticed in the past really 10 or 15 years, there's an uptick in the awareness around nitric oxide. So we're getting there. We're certainly not where we need to be because I think this should be the part of every physician and patient conversation 
no matter if you go under your primary care physician or a wellness functional medicine doc, you have to ask about your nitric oxide production status and then, you know, understand or help your physician understand that whatever symptoms you may be presenting with, could nitric oxide be a culprit? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a cool thing is like if someone has chronic disease, improving nitric oxide levels is going to help with that period in terms of, let's just say, cardiovascular stuff. Like you said, it even fights pathogens. So there's an immune function aspect of it. It's a signal in the brain. But also if you are healthy and you just want to optimize your function, especially like exercise capacity, nitric oxide is one of your best friends. So I, I think it's cool. It's like regardless of where you fall, improving your NO levels is just generally going to improve your vitality and your health. And so what happens with NO levels with aging? And what's like the trajectory of that? Do young people have high levels? As we get older, we get depleted. What's kind of like the the curve of what happens? Well, when we understand how the body makes nitric oxide, we can look at both production pathways. So there's what's called endothelial function. So the ability of our endothelial cells, and these are the single layer of cells that find all blood vessels throughout the body. So their job is to produce sufficient nitric oxide to maintain the the, uh, pliability of the blood vessels so that it's able to dilate and increase oxygen delivery and and blood flow to every organ, tissue, and cell in the body. But it also prevents plaque deposition. It's what keeps the arteries pliable and soft instead of rigid and hard and, and plaque deposition. So the older we get, the less nitric oxide we make in the endothelial cells. So that's what's responsible for age-related disease. In fact, by the time we're 40 years old, we only have about 50% of the nitric oxide we had when we were younger. And I don't think it's coincidental that usually the 40s are typically the age that people feel the effects of aging, right? 50% of men over the age of 40 self-report some degree of erectile dysfunction. We can't, we don't think we're not as sharp as we are in the boardroom. We certainly don't exercise or perform athletically as we did when we were in our late teens, early 20s. So all of this can be attributed to a loss of nitric oxide production. So the, the, really the holy grail in cardiovascular medicine is how do you prevent this age-related decline in nitric oxide production? That's what we've focused on for the past 20 years, and we've, we've cracked the code on how to do that. Nice. And I want to get to that in just a moment. And first, I want to just talk about some common, like you mentioned erectile dysfunction for men. And then for women, I know during menopause, when estrogen signaling changes, I imagine that also affects the NO pathway. And we see low estrogen, and then we see an increase in cardiovascular risk after women are in menopause. And then one of the main medications people take for erectile dysfunction is like Tadalafil or Cialis. And for those who know, what that does is it basically uh, prevents the enzyme that breaks down nitric oxide levels. So it increases nitric oxide levels locally. So people who take Viagra or Cialis, it's working in this nitric oxide pathway except it's just like maybe a band-aid on a deeper problem, which is this whole global decrease in NO level. So this is a probably nice transition to how do people start to approach improving NO levels? And maybe we start with like things to stop and then maybe we get into things to start. Well, I'll just back up and and make a point on the the PD-5 inhibitors, things like Viagra and Cialis and Levitra. So those, you make a good point. Those drugs work downstream of nitric oxide. So you have to have some level of nitric oxide being produced in order for those drugs to work. And we now know with these drugs on the market now for several decades that these drugs work in only 50% of the men in which they're prescribed. So these non-responders can't make any enough sufficient nitric oxide to activate that downstream signal. So that tells us that erectile dysfunction in both men and women is a nitric oxide deficiency. So to get to your question, how do we restore or replete nitric oxide production? 
I tell people, you only got to remember two things. Stop doing the things that disrupt nitric oxide production and start doing the things that promote it. So if we take those one by one, number one, we have to stop using mouthwash. So there's clear evidence from our group and others that if you use mouthwash, you disrupt the oral microbiome. The bacteria in the mouth are critical for producing nitric oxide. And there's 200 million Americans that wake up every morning and use mouthwash. And there's 200 million Americans have an unsafe elevation in blood pressure. Let's let's pause there because I think this is like shocking. No one expected you to be like your first tip is like stop using mouthwash. And my understanding is, right, we think of this gut microbiome that we have. We all want to optimize that with probiotics and prebiotics. But we have this oral microbiome that like feeds this entire system. It's like the most upstream aspect of this. And my understanding is that there's actually nitrate reducing bacteria that are in the mouth on the crypts of the tongue that create nitric oxide for us when we eat certain things and, and what happens. So please unpack that a little bit more so people really understand this whole system and the beauty of it. So nitrate is a molecule that's found primarily in green leafy vegetables. And this isn't foreign to the human body. You know, we, we require gut bacteria to metabolize things like B vitamins and, and short chain fatty acids. And so without these bacteria, then humans can't get these metabolites. So the same thing happens in the mouth. Humans don't have a functional nitrate reductase enzyme. So we're dependent upon the oral bacteria. So number one, we have to eat enough nitrate in our diet, which we get from green leafy vegetables. Number two, we have to have the right oral microbiome to metabolize this nitrate into nitrite and nitric oxide. And when you use mouthwash every day, you disrupt that, you kill the good bacteria along with the bad bacteria, and then you completely shut down nitric oxide production. So, I mean, that we've reported on it that if you use mouthwash, your blood pressure goes up. If you use mouthwash, you lose the protective benefits of exercise. And for the same reason, we don't take an antibiotic every day for our entire life because of the consequences of antibiotics on the gut microbiome. But for the same reason, you shouldn't rinse with an antiseptic mouthwash every day for the rest of your life because you're shutting down this essential metabolism of the oral microbiome and the consequences are clear. That is crazy. And I think I, I was watching one of your presentations a couple of days ago, and you said that you took like, there was normotensive people. So no, no hypertension. They have mouthwash for seven days and that intervention alone causes their blood pressure to go up. Is this, is this what you, what, what someone has found or you found? No, we published this in 2019 that if you take healthy normotensive patients and we just give them mouthwash twice a day for seven days, we can watch their blood pressure go up. In fact, in seven days in one patient, we made his blood pressure go up 26 millimeters of mercury. So a healthy 21-year-old triathlete, we made him clinically hypertensive in seven days just by using mouthwash and disrupting the oral microbiome. Interestingly, and I think importantly, this, this is, this, the plasticity of these communities is pretty remarkable because four days after he stopped the mouthwash, the oral microbiome repopulated and his blood pressure normalized. So that's a pretty severe you know, consequence of using mouthwash because high blood pressure is the number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease, which is still the number one killer of men and women worldwide. So we have to be better at managing blood pressure and using antihypertensive medication isn't the answer. Because 50% of people that are on prescription medications for high blood pressure don't have managed blood pressure, don't have normal blood pressure. So polypharmacy is not the answer. More drugs aren't the answer. It's really trying to get to the root cause of the high blood pressure which in our research, about 95% of the time, it's a lack of nitric oxide production. 
That's a huge statement. And I, you know, like I'm on board, like this is like, obviously why I wanted to bring you on and get so deep into this is because it's just kind of like groundbreaking paradigm shifting. And, you know, I even saw a headline that said one of these nitric oxide increasing drugs, and they were particularly talking about Tadalafil, you know, is maybe the aspirin of the future is what the headline said. And I'm like, wow, well maybe, but this is so, so, so important. Now, are there any other medications that people take on a regular basis that impact NO levels and other things like this? Well, mouthwash is the big one. The other thing that I think people take for granted is fluoride. You know, fluoride in your toothpaste, fluoride's an antiseptic, it's a neurotoxin, and it shuts down your thyroid function. So you have to get rid of exposure to fluoride. And that's somewhat challenging. You know, you can just buy a fluoride-free toothpaste, but in most municipal water systems, they put fluoride in the municipal water. So you're bathing in it, you're cooking your food in it, you're drinking it, and you have to get rid of fluoride, whether that involves getting a home filtration system or drinking water system, but you have to remove fluoride from the human body. And do you specifically do this? Do you use a fluoride-free toothpaste and you have a whole house water filtration system of some sort? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We do too, by the way. I haven't used fluoride toothpaste in like probably 20 years, which sounds crazy, but like I kind of figured this out early. Not the NO connection, but just I knew that fluoride was like a very reactive molecule and I didn't necessarily want that in my body. Yeah. So fluoride's a big one. And then, you know, drugs like uh, proton pump inhibitors and acids shut down nitric oxide production. There was data from, I think, 2015 that showed that people who have been on antacids for three to five years had a 40% higher incidence of heart attack and stroke. So these drugs were never approved by the FDA to be used chronically, only acute use for gastroesophageal reflux disease. But yet you have people taking these over-the-counter every day for sometimes 5, 10, 20 years, and it shuts down nitric oxide production and the data are, are profound. I mean, you're increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke. And it's a double whammy, right? Because people are often having these like inflammatory crap foods that can cause acid reflux. So that's inflammatory in its very nature. Now you're getting lower NO levels too, which makes the whole endothelial area even worse off. And it's like, you can see how this compounds dramatically. That's exactly right. Cool. How does NO like work with on like the metabolic pathways? Because I saw that there was some like knockout mice where they don't have the nitric oxide synthase like gene and they develop high blood pressures, insulin resistance. What is the connection between NO and metabolism? Well, we've known for a number of years that diabetic patients have vascular disease, right? And people, most diabetics aren't dying from diabetes itself unless they're going to diabetic coma or ketoacidosis or ketogenic shock they're dying from the cardiovascular complications of diabetes. And we know once you get diabetes, hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, that shuts down nitric oxide production. The epiphany came when you knock out the gene in mice that makes nitric oxide, their first phenotype is insulin-resistant type 2 diabetes. So that tells us that if you become deficient in nitric oxide, you start to develop insulin resistance. And if not corrected, you develop full-blown type 2 diabetes. So nitric oxide is part of the insulin signaling pathway, that when insulin binds to the insulin receptor, it starts this whole intracellular signaling that's dependent upon nitric oxide. So if your body can't make nitric oxide, which in diabetics it can't, then you don't get the signal for the cell to take up glucose and clear it from the circulation. So you develop hyperglycemia, it tells the pancreas, I need more insulin, you develop hyperinsulinemia, and that's the inflammatory response and what's called metabolic syndrome and and metabolic disease. So we're finding that if you just simply replete nitric oxide or restore the production of nitric oxide, you complete the insulin signaling pathway, you clear the glucose from the circulation, you reduce the secretion of insulin, 
you can basically overcome the metabolic phenotypes of type 2 diabetes. Dang. It's really that simple. It is that simple. And I'd say it's even that poetic, just how intertwined this whole system is. And I think people are, if they're really into this, like I am, they're probably jumping at their seat to be like, but, but Dr. Brian, how do we increase NO levels? Like, what do we do? I'm going to stop my mouthwash. I might change my toothpaste. And by the way, I'll throw some links in the show notes for like a toothpaste that I use, as well as some other all the products and supplements that you may mention in this next section. But what can we do to actually increase NO levels naturally, whether supplementation, food, or even breathing practices? Yeah. So, I mean, once you address the first thing, so get rid of mouthwash, get rid of fluoride, get off the antacids. Now your body is actually primed to, to heal itself, right? Because humans are regenerative by nature. We just have to give the body what it needs. The body heals itself. So once you do that, then we recommend, you know, moderate physical exercise. Exercise is medicine because it stimulates the production of nitric oxide. So just 20 or 30 minutes of moderate physical exercise per day. Uh, sunlight, you know, there's certain wavelengths of light that will stimulate nitric oxide release topically in the skin. I like an infrared sauna, especially during the winter. If you live uh, in the Northern hemisphere, then infrared light is really good. I sit in an infrared sauna every day. Nice. And then green leafy vegetables. You know, you need to add more. There's nitrate is found primarily in green leafy vegetables. So we have to get at least 300 to 400 milligrams of the nitrate per day through our diet. And that's challenging because we we surveyed a number of different vegetables all across the U.S. several years ago and found that, you know, there's regional differences in the amount of nitrate found in certain vegetables. So along the Rust Belt, where there's a lot of lightning strikes and, and thunderstorms, we find that the soil is more enriched in nitrogen. In other areas where there's less lightning storms, the soil is not enriched in nitrogen. So any vegetables grown in that area don't have sufficient nitrate. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, to make recommendations on, well, you should eat six stalks of celery a day or a certain amount of broccoli or kale or spinach, because it depends on where you live and how the vegetables are grown. But it's fair enough to say that maybe getting more of that stuff is still like good dietary advice, get some dark green leafies. Yeah, look, there are other benefits of green leafy vegetables, other trace minerals and nutrients and fiber you get from that. What we focused on is simply around what's needed, what's required to make nitric oxide. But you're not going to be a detriment to your health by throwing some more green leafy vegetables in your dietary patterns. Funny enough, when I stumbled upon your work and some of the nitrate stuff, I actually like gave myself like a pat on the back accidentally because in designing our Fit Father and Fit Mother programs, one of the things we do is we have people like standardize their first meal of the day and they do these like breakfast smoothies. And one thing I had people throw in is a bunch of dark green leafy vegetables like into that smoothie because I figure, hey, it's good stuff, right? There's some fiber, some minerals, but it just turns out that it actually, it's a good source of nitrates in there along with like cacao. Does cacao have nitrates in there too? We put that in there for the magnesium and stuff anyways. Well, cacao, no, not typically, but it has these epicatechins that will stimulate endothelial nitric oxide production. So I think it's a good combination. Cool. So nitric oxide in your morning smoothie is a good thing. No, that's right. All right. So keep on taking us through. Yeah. The other challenge we find is, you know, there are a lot of commercial products on the market, whether it's bead powders or, or green food uh, complexes. And so we've analyzed a lot of these and about 90 to 95% of those products on the market don't contain any nitrate. They don't have any nitric oxide activity. Uh, in fact, we use a lot of these beet products as placebos in our clinical trials. So the consumer has to be careful because, you know, there's a lot of deceptive marketing going on in this. There's tons of nitric oxide products on the market, but very few of them actually deliver anything or do anything with regard to nitric oxide. 
Okay. I'm, I'm curious now because you, you sometimes see people talk about that they're trying to avoid nitrates in their diet, <laughs> yeah. mostly in the form of like cured meats, right? Because right. people are like beets are probably good for you. So is spinach. But like, but I heard that this is like a, it's advertised that this is a low nitrate or nitrate salami. Like what's the difference there between like the cured processed meats and nitrates in meats versus the vegetables? There is no difference. You know, it may be surprising to your listeners, but we've been misinformed by mainstream media and the medical field for the past 50 years. If this were the case, 80% of the nitrate that we get exposed to, both nitrate and nitrite, come from green leafy vegetables. Only 5% comes from cured and processed meats. So if nitrate caused cancer, vegetarians would have a 10 time higher cancer rate than meat eaters. And we know that's just the opposite, right? So the nitrate in these vegetables, whether it's in naturally occurring vegetables or whether it's nitrate or nitrite added to cured and processed meats, it's the exact same molecule that when consumed in the body, it generates nitric oxide. So that's that's a complete uh, a myth that we basically kind of corrected about 10 years ago. So you don't have to worry. That's really cool. And so much so, do you include those things as a part of your diet on a decently regular basis? Or do you supplement in such a way that that's not necessarily important? Look, you can't you can't eat enough bacon or cured meat to get enough nitrate or nitrite from those sources to manage your blood pressure. Okay. But you know, I'm not a big fan of these extreme diets, whether it's hardcore vegan or straight carnivore. I still subscribe to the fact that a balanced diet in moderation is probably going to be best. And there's not a one size fits all because we're all different. But I think excluding certain foods from your diet, you're eliminating certain trace minerals and and nutrients. So we need a balanced diet, a diverse diet to get the nutrients that we need in order for the human cell, human body to do its job. I totally agree with you. That's the philosophy I've stumbled upon as well. How does the gut microbiome play into this as well? And like diversity, my my general, it's complex. We're figuring this out. But like diversity of different types of populations of bacteria seems like a good thing. What can you speak to on like the foods to eat on that front? If there's any probiotic, prebiotic connection to the NO story? Well, you know, the, the gut microbiome changes as it goes from the mouth all the way to the anus, right? So those are different environments, different ecology. What we focused on, I mean, a lot of people focused on the gut microbiome and we understand the importance of that because you can cure a lot of poorly managed disease just by doing fecal transplants and putting the good bacteria into people and making them better. To me, that that's transformative. What we focused on is the oral microbiome. So what we're finding is, and we understand the bacteria, we've identified the bacteria, filed a number of patents on these, on, on trying to restore this population. But it may be so simple that we just got to include more nitrate in our diet because nitrate acts as a prebiotic. So these facultative anaerobic bacteria respire on nitrogen. When there's no oxygen, they use nitrogen as substrate. So if we just give the body more nitrate through our, through our diet that's secreted then in our saliva, then that gives these bacteria a substrate to respire on. And then we end, what we're finding is you increase the diversity of the microbiome. The good guys keep the bad guys at bay, and you really have a healthy microbiome that's able to do its job. Nice. So nitrate is a prebiotic for these, the, these strains right. of facultative anaerobic bacteria that produce ultimately higher nitric oxide levels. Now, for someone serious about this, they listen to this, they're like, I really want to get make sure I'm getting enough nitrate in my diet. How much should they aim for and what's the best way to actually ensure that you're getting it in? Well, again, that's a challenge because it depends on which vegetables you're eating, where you're buying them, 
how you cook them. You know, if you boil your vegetables, these are water-soluble anions that come out in the water. So if you're boiling your vegetables, you should drink the water as well as these vegetables because you're, you're leaching out all of the water-soluble uh, minerals and nutrients. Um, but you need at least 300 to 400 milligrams per day per serving uh, to see any appreciable effect on blood pressure or to see any appreciable effect on exercise performance. So there's some products out there that have a standardized amount of nitrate or nitrite in those. And I've developed a lot of those products to where you don't have to guess. We provide what the body needs at the right dose at the right time for good blood pressure management and to improve exercise performance. Is there a time of day that's optimal? Is it like feed these guys in the morning, have benefit, or basically anytime you have a meal, like when is a good time to get more nitrate in supplement or through the kinds of foods that are high in nitrate? Well, I think first thing in the morning, you know, because it takes about 90 minutes for nitrate to be converted into nitric oxide in the human body. So when you consume these vegetables, it has to be taken up in the gut, concentrated in our salivary glands. And now for the next six, eight, 10 hours, each time we salivate, these bacteria are generating nitrite and nitric oxide in the mouth. And then when we swallow our own saliva, we're getting a burst of nitric oxide in the lumen of the stomach. So I think first thing in the morning is probably the best. You know, most heart attacks happen before 10 a.m. Yeah, cortisol levels are high, nitric oxide levels are low. That's the combination, right? Yep, exactly. So I think as soon as you wake up in the morning is the best time to supplement with nitric oxide. So, you know, it's funny. My pre-workout for many years recently has been some caffeine and some beetroot powder. But now, like, I might have just been taking placebo beetroot for so long. (laughs) I got to get more serious about this. I came from like the bodybuilding and fitness world, which is hilarious because there's all these NO boosting supplements and oftentimes they're loaded with arginine or citrulline or or ornithine or something like that. Like from that vein, like what of these other supplements are actually beneficial for NO production? What do you actually suggest outside of just getting more standardized amount of nitrate into your diet? Well, as you mentioned, a lot of these pre-workouts are laced with a lot of caffeine. Caffeine's a vasoconstrictor. Right? So any nitric oxide that may be produced is going to be counteracted by the constrictor effects of caffeine. Uh, and I've been contacted by many of these companies to try to help reform. I said, look, you got to get the caffeine out. And they tell me, well, we've tried that, but then the product doesn't work. And I go, well, you don't have a nitric oxide product. You got a caffeine <laughs> stimulant product if caffeine's the active uh, ingredient there. But look, you don't need arginine or citrulline. These are semi-essential amino acids. The body makes enough through the urea cycle to convert and the cell uses arginine that comes from the urea cycle, not arginine that comes from supplementation or from extracellular arginine. So supplementing. That's right. So it's never made sense to me about these companies selling arginine or citrulline supplements and trying to get nitric oxide. Cause in the problem is in that pathway that becomes dysfunctional with age, the older we get, the enzyme that converts arginine to nitric oxide becomes dysfunctional. So you're not at a fuel. I tell people taking arginine is like putting gas in a car with a blown up engine, right? You can't convert that. So it makes no, it, it makes no sense to add more arginine to a diet in terms of supplementation. In fact, you can actually do more harm than good because in many studies, if you give arginine to a patient with endothelial dysfunction, they get worse. This happens in post-infarct patients. It happens in patients with peripheral artery disease. So I tell people, don't take arginine. Don't take arginine products. Number one, you don't need it because your body makes enough. And number two, you could uncouple the enzyme and, and create a lot more oxidative stress and cause more harm than good. 
So what is the order of operations then for someone who's like looking for the protocol, like 20, 30 minutes of like cardiovascular activity per day to get that thing going, getting nitrates in, what else can they practically do? Well, you know, we make technology that if, and our whole premise was in our drug discovery program was if, if, if your body can make nitric oxide, then we got to do it for you. So I have a number of patents, uh, several dozen patents on this technology, but we make an orally disintegrating tablet that when you put this lozenge in your mouth, it's designed to have a resident time of about five to six minutes. But as it's dissolving, we're generating nitric oxide gas. Mm -hmm. So it's not dependent upon the oral bacteria. It's not dependent upon stomach acid production, because if that were the case, then every single person would have a different response. So what we do when we put that lozenge in your mouth, we generate nitric oxide the same amount over the same amount of time in the same patient, in the same person. Mm-hmm. So everybody gets a response. And then we see peak plasma concentrations within 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of our daily kind of daily dose of nitric oxide. So I'll get up, I'll take a, a lozenge in the morning, and then we've created a fermented bead powder that basically pre-converts the nitrate to nitrite. So again, if you don't have the mm-hmm. right bacteria then we've done it for you. We've pre-converted that to where your body is immediately receptive to it. And as soon as you put that in water, we can detect and quantify the nitric oxide coming off. So when you consume that, we're now generating nitric oxide throughout the human body. And the effects of that are remarkable in terms of performance. For those listening who want links, like I will ask you for links. There'll be links in the show notes to some of these things that people can get to start playing around with it. And I also want to talk to you about the salivary test strip. So my dear friend who turned me on to this, his name is Dr. Wesley Kress. He's one of the smartest guys I know. I, I show up at this party and he hands me this strip. He's like, well, doozy spit on this. And so I spit on this thing. And he's like, your levels of nitrate in your, in your saliva are depleted. And I was like, what? And so we go down this whole rabbit hole and now we're here having this conversation. So thank you, Wesley. Is it a good idea for people to test their nitric oxide levels or like by proxy via the saliva test? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I developed that test strip about 12 years ago. Because the challenge was when we developed the nitric oxide technology, the first question was, how do I know if I need this, right? A very, it's, a, it's a fair question. And unlike, you know, like your cholesterol or vitamin D or triglycerides, you can't pull blood and run a lab and give your nitric oxide levels. It's not part of, I mean, we do it in the research environment, but not in a clinical setting. So we had to develop a way to determine the nitric oxide production status in individual patients. So we sample saliva. And so if you have the right bacteria that can reduce nitrate to nitrite, then we just put some simple chemistry on the end of this test strip and we can quantify the amount of nitrite in your saliva. So if you're low, then that tells us your body's low at making nitric oxide. It doesn't tell us why. Is it because you're using mouthwash? Is it because you have endothelial dysfunction? Is it because you're not getting enough nitrate from your diet? Or is it because you're not exercising enough? But if you're low, you're low. There's no such thing as a false negative. But there are some false positives that I, you know, you have to be aware of. So, and we see this sometimes, you've got an older patient with high blood pressure, erectile dysfunction, and diabetes, and he lights up the test strip bright pink. Well, obviously, he's not replete in nitric oxide. What we're finding is he's typically have an oral infection. So you've got a local immune response dealing with an oral infection that's generating a lot of nitric oxide in the oral cavity, but systemically, he may be nitric oxide deficient. So I, t- I tell people, look, the test strips are a cool engaging engagement tool, and they're a good tool to have in your toolbox, but it shouldn't be the only thing you're using. Yeah, it seems like that lozenge is a really good idea. That, that seems like a pretty heavy hitter if you want to take this seriously. 
No, that's right. That's the, the most efficacious way to generate nitric oxide. And everybody gets the same response. So no matter what your underlying physiology is, no matter what your underlying microbiome may be, the lozenge works the same in every single person, every single time. Let's talk about this thing in the middle of our face for a second. We have this nose and like there's been a lot that's been written for thousands of years of human history about the importance of breathing, particularly nasal breathing. And something I've talked about on the show before is like when you do this, you get this endogenous nitric oxide production that happens through the nose and in the nasal oral pharynx area. Can we talk about nose breathing a little bit and what you suggest people do and some, maybe some of the research behind that? Well, the evidence is clear. We, I mean, we've known for many, many years that if, you, if people nasal breathe or do deep breathing that it can lower blood pressure, right? And so the mechanism that explains that is this enzyme nitric oxide synthase is found in the epithelial cells as well as the endothelial cells. So when we deep breathe through the nose, through our nasal sinuses, that activates this enzyme to make nitric oxide. So there are mechanoreceptors on these epithelial cells that say, I need to make nitric oxide. So when you take in a deep breath, you activate these enzymes they make nitric oxide, then you deliver the nitric oxide gas into the pulmonary circulation as well as the bronchial airways. So it not only acts as a vasodilator, but it acts as a bronchodilator. So now you're improving the efficiency of oxygen uptake, you're improving the efficiency of oxygen delivery, and you can normalize blood pressure. But uh, most people, whether they have obstructive sleep apnea or they're mouth breathers, they're bypassing this entire pathway they become nitric oxide deficient, and it exacerbates their underlying condition. And we know now the evidence is clear that people with sleep apnea have a 10 time higher incidence of heart attack and stroke and all-cause cardiovascular mortality. So it's a very important process. Makes a ton of sense. I want to ask you about, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but the practice of humming. So like, yeah, so like this is, and I think this is really cool, but like literally just making the mm, sound where tongue is re resting on the roof of the mouth and you're vibrating this oral cavity stimulates nitric oxide production. Is this true? Is this something that you've like learned about or about or recommend? No, that is, that is true. And so we can actually measure and detect the nitric oxide that comes from humming. So this certain frequency activates this enzyme too. But here's the very critically important caveat that it requires the function of this enzyme to be active. And in people that are, have endothelial dysfunction also have epithelial dysfunction. So if you can't make nitric oxide through that enzyme, you can hum, you can deep breathe. And in fact, there's data showing that the amount of nitric oxide that's produced through nasal breathing decreases with age. So just as the endothelial production of nitric oxide decreases with age, the nasal breathing through the sinuses because if that enzyme becomes dysfunctional in the endothelial cells, it becomes dysfunctional in the epithelial cells of the sinuses. So we have to recouple that enzyme, and we have technology that does that. So now that when you deep breathe or when you hum, you can actually produce the nitric oxide that's intended. That's pretty cool. And I, I like to look at it as like, these have been conserved practices that humans have been doing for thousands of years and have seen benefit. And now I think we're kind of getting some scientific understanding of maybe the neck mechanisms of why humans have been saying it's really important if you make this mm, type sounds and, and do things like this. So I just think it's super poetic how this ties everything together. Is it fair to say that smoking is a bad idea for this whole thing? You know, whether all tobacco, cannabis, whatever, you know, can we talk to, into that? I'm still surprised at the number of people that smoke because, I mean, the evidence and the epidemiological data are very clear. I mean, smoking is probably one of those harmful things you can do in terms of overall health. 
you know, uh, it shuts down nitric oxide production, causes a lot of oxidative stress. You've got a lot of toxic chemicals in there that are vasoconstrictors and cause a lot of inflammation. Um, so yeah, people, people, I mean, shouldn't smoke if they care anything about their health. Period. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Now, can you talk a little bit about some uh, like clinical trials or, or what's next for you in terms of this mission to educate people about nitric oxide? Well, you know, I spent about 20 years in basic science research. I'm now retired from full-time academia and you know, I'm, my mission now has changed. Early on in my career, it was, you know, to discover and innovate and translate these science discoveries into, you know, safe and effective product technology. So we've been successful in the nutrition dietary supplement space. We created a skincare line, you know, uh, nitric, the, the skin is one of the largest organs. And, you know, just like any other organ, like the heart or the sex organs, it needs blood supply and blood flow to, to maintain normal function. And so what we find is that the aging skin is really a reflection of poor circulation. So we developed a topical nitric oxide for skincare, and that has remarkable transformative. In fact, it's a new product category in skincare. So most skincare products hide or mask the blemishes, the fine lines and wrinkles. We get to the root cause. So now my mission and objective is to introduce safe and effective product technology into every major market segment in the world. So I think that's kind of where we are now. But I think most importantly, well, not most importantly, but certainly just as important, we're developing nitric oxide drugs. So we're taking this technology through FDA clinical trials. We've got a, a drug in phase three clinical trials for COVID. We've got a drug for Alzheimer's. We've got a drug for ischemic non-obstructive coronary artery disease, ischemic heart disease. And we're taking our topical nitric oxide technology and making a topical drug for diabetic ulcers and and non-healing wounds. And it's transformative. That is amazing. I don't know if this is trade secrets, but I'm going to pry a little bit. Are these working on increasing NO synthase? Are these working on, you know, preventing the breakdown? What are some of the mechanisms that these drugs work if you're, if you're able to share? No, I'm, I'm happy to share it. So we do really what no one else has been able to do in 30 years in the nitric oxide space. So I became pretty famous for developing a solid dose form of gas. And it almost transforms physical chemistry. So nitric oxide is a gas. When it's produced in the body, it's gone in less than a second. So how do you produce a solid dose form of a gas? It's got to be bound to something that it releases from, I'm guessing. Well, it's a lot of chemistry that has to occur. And so the form factor on how you deliver this has been the key for us. So an orally disintegrating tablet provides kind of some spatial distribution and randomness. So when these active components come together, they generate nitric oxide. For the topical, we have a dual chamber delivery system. So we've got two ingredients, two components, and two separate chambers. And when you mix these together, the chemistry starts and you apply it to the skin. We generate nitric oxide gas. It kills bacteria, it kills viruses, and improves blood flow. So that's what you need to heal a wound. All right. And my, my final question for you, because this has been super fascinating, is I know there's going to want to be people who want to learn more or just follow along your journey, be privy to some of the products that you have coming down into the marketplace. Where can people connect with you? Where would you like to direct people to find out more? Well, the first place I send people is I have an educational website. You know, I do a monthly blog and try to provide some timely, practical information on just nitric oxide awareness. And that's the drnathansbryan.com. There's a six-minute video on there that'll kind of explain to you the, the nitric oxide physiology and biochemistry in a way that's easily understood. I'm also on Instagram, Dr. Nathan S. Bryan, Twitter at Dr. Nitric. 
so I, you know, I try to tell people to get educated and do your own research around nitric oxide and become informed. But the, the, the challenge is there's so much noise out there and so much deceptive marketing by companies telling consumers that this is a nitric oxide product when it's not. And so, you know, I think it's like the wild, wild west still in the, in the supplement space. So you have to hold these companies accountable. And so what I try to do is, you know, I test these products so I can test if a product actually delivers nitric oxide. So what we do is we never bring a product to market that we can't verify and quantify the amount of nitric oxide that's being delivered when that product is consumed. That's super cool. And, and again, there will be links to these particular products in the show notes for people who want to learn more. And I also do recommend your book. I think it's a nice primer as well for people who want to get into some of the science of it. Dr. Brian, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge. It's, it's like a true privilege to get to see like an accomplished scientist come on and speak so clearly and inspire people on something that I believe is a monumental you know, health movement that I hope to see your products everywhere. I hope to see them anti-aging, hope to see more people taking the lozenges, and I'm going to do my little part of leading the charge and making sure that we get your message out to the world. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. You know, none of this would be possible. We can't make a difference unless we reach the masses. And so the science is clear. Now my mission is to educate and inform as many people as possible. And I thank you very much for the opportunity and great job and keep, keep doing the good work you're doing. Thanks, Dr. Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fit Father Project podcast. If you love what you heard, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread this show to more men who need this valuable info. To watch full video episodes of this podcast and other motivational videos to inspire your training and more, visit our Fit Father Project YouTube channel. It's free and everything's made for busy guys over 40 like you. Visit youtube.com forward slash Fit Father Project to get access to our entire video library. And finally, if you or someone in your life is interested in becoming a fit father or needs help losing weight, building muscle, and living healthier after age 40, then visit fitfatherproject.com where you can see our proven programs, supplement line for guys 40 plus, and free meal plan and workouts to get you started. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll see you in the next episode.